Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Joe Krovchek of uh, Field and Forest Products. And uh, Joe, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm co-owner of Field and Forest Products. Uh, my wife and I started this business way back when, I think in 1983 is when we incorporated. So we've been involved with mushroom cultivation for quite a little while now. Um, we specialize in uh, wood decay fungi. Uh, we do have uh, workshops. Uh, we do some stuff with ready-to-fruit blocks, but uh, we're really big on log-based cultivation. That's uh, where our niche really lies. So let's kind of, how let's go all the way back to the roots in the beginning of this. I mean, how long were you initially foraging? What got you interested in fungi? And uh, just, you know, kind of let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, boy, it goes way back uh, to my youth. Uh, you know. Being Polish, uh, foraging is genetically linked <laughs> to our to our inheritance you know, to ourselves. So, uh, when I was uh, a, a wee bit younger, uh, I would go foraging with my grandfather and my dad. So they would plan these foraging trips up to central Wisconsin in sand counties to look for uh, what they were calling stumpers. Uh, actually, they were calling them putinki because they were poles. But, you know, commonly stumpers, uh, button mushrooms, honey mushrooms, those are all common names for Armillarialia, and that's what we were hunting. Uh, so at an early age, I got involved in the world of foraging. You know, that, you know it, it kind of lost its charm when you're in grade school, you know, and in high school, it was like, okay, well, you know, it's something that I did a long time ago. And then my dad appeared at one of our workshops that we were doing on forestry work and he was mushroom hunting. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And it all brought back those great feelings. So it, it's continued uh, with me through my adult life, but we love to forage. Uh, my wife is of Polish descent, learned a lot from her dad and different mushroom varieties from him. And now it's passed down to our next generation where our kids are now into foraging. So it's a great thing to do. Yeah, no, Gets that's out. That's awesome. So I got to ask you though, like, uh, I mean, was that something you and your wife bonded over? Uh, was going out and hunting <laughs> mushrooms, or what? What? Uh, how did that all come about? Well, you know, it was uh, we actually met in a 
in pathology class at UWGV. And then we took uh, mycology together. So we shared that common interest uh, from the beginning. And then, you know, the whole mushroom hunting thing, that just is, it's just another side trip that uh, came along with the relationship. Uh, we both love the forge and uh, in our later years here, we've really loved, we really love foraging while mountain biking. So we like to combine the two because it gets us out, keeps us active, and then it also gets us up there what we really like to do, and that is looking for things wild and edible. No, and cultivatable, by the way. You know, that's yeah. one of the things, too, that we can't forget. You know, when you're out there looking, there's a lot of different fungi that we think could be brought into the realm of cultivation. So we're always looking for that, too. That's one thing that I find very interesting, and I don't know if you know about it at all, but it's called the Danish Morel Project. And um, supposedly that they are some of the first people to successfully cultivate and grow indoors um, black morel mushrooms. And they're doing it repeat, repeatedly, having success doing it. And uh, it kind of makes me sad, though, because it, it kind of takes away the allure, the mystique <laughs> of the magic morel um, mushroom, you know. And, and And you see that now, and if that can be scaled on a macro scale to where everybody's doing it it kind of loses its luster a little bit because in the springtime that's one of my favorite activities i'd say i put morel hunting way over turkey hunting and uh it, it kind of just takes it away from me a little bit and makes me a little little sad that it's one day it might not be as illustrious as it once was yeah you know there's there's actually quite a history behind that whole uh indoor cultivation thing i can remember in 1998 visiting a facility, I want to say in Auburn, Alabama, that was growing morels even back then. Uh, however, they had some strain degeneration problems, so they were having to really able to make it. But, you know, to get back to your point about the morel maybe losing its luster if it becomes commercially cultivated, uh, this was really summed up really well by a friend of ours, Hal Birdsall. He was with the Forest Products Lab in Madison. And at a foray, he said, you know, the taste of the morel is in the hunt. And you know what? I agree with that. It's the first edible thing in the spring of the year. You're out there, rah, 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 go, go, go. It's a treasure hunt, for one thing. And you're outside, and you're looking for that first edible mushroom. Morels, yeah, they taste good. Uh, however, on my list, they're, you know, they're not certainly at the top, but it's the hunt that brings out that flavor. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's still though, I mean, to me, it, I don't know, it doesn't make it as cool as it once was because, you know, if you can grow them and buy them in a store, you know, kind of loses its appeal, but I agree with you definitely that the hunt for them will still be just as fun. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you, uh, do you ever go for anything other than mushrooms out in the wild? Do you pick any type of uh, other vegetation or anything like that? Oh boy, that's uh, that was a different lifetime ago. Uh, I was doing uh, you know edible plants way back when in college, but that's kind of gone by the wayside. That's been replaced by uh, a large garden, yeah, <laughs> now more than anything. <laughs> and and it's it's a large garden that Mary Ellen takes care of. I just like to go in there and graze more than anything. <laughs> yeah. That's what my kids do. <laughs> they don't put in the work, but they'll sure help you eat it. <laughs> oh, you bet. Yeah. <laughs> So um, how did it come about then that you guys wanted to, I mean, start? Did, did you start growing your own mushrooms? I mean, were you taking them from the wild and cultivating them in cultures? Or how, how did that happen? Oh, man. You know, it, it's not, uh, <clears throat> we, we really don't have that kind of Cinderella story where we were cultivating at home and this thing came up. What it was was, um, Way back in the early 80s, I was working for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources as a field botanist. And a lot of stuff would come across my desk. And one of the things I came across was an article written by Gary Latham of the Forest Products Lab that said, the cultivation of shiitake and natural logs, potential new industry for the U.S. So that really picked my curiosity. So um, I got the article and read it. And I thought, wow, this is great. This could really turn into a small business. Uh, 
we were living in Madison at the time and we wanted to relocate to Peshto to live on uh, the farm property that's been in Mary Ellen's family for generations. So we said, well, let's start a small business. And what we'll do is we'll grow mushrooms, but we'll also grow small fruit crops. So we'll have field, which is blueberries, strawberries, and raspberries, and forest will be the mush, uh, mushroom products. So uh, we hopped into it uh, with our background in mycology and culture and that atmosphere. We just said, yeah, we can do this. And, you know, and along the way, we have to be thankful for a lot of people. Gary, for- Gary Latham at the Forest Products Lab really helped us along. Halberd saw that. So we did have some professional guidance as we moved along. But, yeah, you know, here we are close to 40 years later, and it's a booming enterprise. Absolutely. I, I find it fascinating because I recently just learned about um, inoculating logs from a friend who actually recommended uh, field forest products for a beginner to start out. And mm-hmm. uh, he was telling me he's a permaculturist and he was telling me about how he's had great su- success with your products and inoculates his logs and all that kind of stuff. And it really just piqued my interest in, and then, Normally, I'll do a little bit of research and jump jump head first into something without even having the full um, full amount of research done to really even know what I'm doing. But along the way, I've called you guys a couple times and stuff and asked a few questions about, you know, should my logs be uh, in a certain environment for a certain amount of time? Did they get enough inoculation before the frost hit? All that kind of stuff. And um it's been pretty cool to, to see it all happen and mine haven't even, uh, actually fruited yet, but I'm pretty excited that, you know, this spring slash summer, I'm going to be getting some mushrooms out of those logs, hopefully. Um, so can you kind of run through the process of how one actually, uh, would get the either peg spawn or sawdust and, and actually inoculate logs and all that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, it's, uh, how many hours do you got? Uh, <laughs> well, let's uh, just focus on uh, shiitake uh, because that is really, I think, probably one of the easier mushrooms to grow on logs. So right now, during the dormant season, is the time you're going to be wanting to source logs. Uh, the logs need to be cut from uh, living, healthy trees while dormant. And the reason for that is that the wood is going to have its highest nutritional content at this time of the year. So you got to take a look for wood. And what kind of wood are we looking for? Well, I'm going to say here in the upper Midwest, we're looking at any of the oak species, sugar maple. Maybe in Illinois, you might run into some sweet gum. Uh, Let's see what else there's. American beech. All the really hard hardwoods make great substrates. So this is what you're looking for now to cut in a sustainable way. Uh, If you don't know what you're looking at, and if you don't know if it should be cut or not, you don't want to uh, devastate the future value of your woodlot if you're cutting from your own lot for some mushrooms. You'll want to contact a consultant forester to figure out what needs to come out and what wood can then be used for mushroom cultivation. So once you get that all straightened out, yeah, wood is cut now. it needs to age for several weeks. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that you go online, which is the source of all knowledge. And the recommendations are always, you got to let the wood age to let the antifungal properties leave the wood. Well, the antifungal property is water. We need to have some water leave the cells because uh, she talking to all these other wood decay fungi will not enter a water-saturated cell. So you need to let the logs age a little bit through some water. And then in the meantime, uh, you need to get some spawn ordered. Uh, typically, spawn is produced in two different forms. Plug spawn, which is easy to use for a beginner because you don't need any specialized tools. Uh, you drill a hole into the log, and then it's, the plug is pounded in uh, with a hammer and then sealed with wax. Uh, you know, a couple logs, five logs, 10, 20 logs in the backyard uh, with plug spawn. Plenty of mushrooms for a family of four. Now, if you get an inkling to do this on a larger scale, say for friends, relatives, farm markets, 
then saw to spawn is the way to go. A little bit more economical, gives you a little bit faster spawn run. And uh, here's a little known fact that the larger diameter hole that you're drilling into a log for use of saw to spawn is going to give you initially larger mushrooms too to begin with. So this is the, the start of the process now, this uh, sourcing wood, sourcing and buying spawn, and then getting ready to inoculate. Uh, um, and that in itself is uh, fraught with learning and a learning curve. So if you haven't done this before, uh, keep in mind that you're gonna be handling logs a lot. So protect your back. Use logs that are of a standard length and hopefully a small enough diameter. You know, typically we're using wood that is 40 inches in length. And you say, why 40 inches? Why not 36? Well, 40 inches is just what traditionally the Japanese use in their cultivation efforts. So we just stuck with that. And we like to use wood that's easy to handle, you know, between three and five inches in diameter. In oak, that's a great size. The sap and the heart ratios are really good. And the sap is where also that nutrition is. So you'll want to always keep that in mind. You don't really want to use saw logs for this. Man, when someone calls me up and says, I got a log 15 inches in diameter, eight feet long, how much spawn am I going to need? <laughs> I just, just <laughs> have to say a lot. <laughs> Plug away. Let me know how much you use because that's a lot of effort. You know, there's this has really been worked out over many years because this industry, even though it began in the U.S. in the 80s, it had been ongoing in Japan since in World War II. So uh, we look at wood and we look at logs as being your base for the best mushroom crop. And that base has to be wood that's going to be nutritious for the fungus and easy to handle. So what's wrong with that big log that you're thinking? Well, the sapwood to heartwood ratio is really small. You take a look at the volume of it, it's mostly gonna be heartwood, which is uh, nutrient poor. Bark, the other characteristic that really controls fruiting is gonna be really thick. So yeah, it'll produce mushrooms over a long period of time. Uh, However, you know, from an ease of handling standpoint, small diameter logs are so much easier to work with. And you'll get your yield out of them a lot quicker. Now, there's nothing saying you can't inoculate a log like that. Just be prepared for, you know, a lot of work in a long haul uh, for it to really start going. Yeah. So um, one of the things I've always kind of been curious about was um, – how how do you know when the time frame is for the moisture in the log? I hear like two weeks, sometimes a little bit longer. Is there a period that you don't want to go beyond um, for yeah, the logs? Definitely. Uh, you know, like anything else with a biological process, there's no cookie cutter uh, formula for this. So you have to use your power of observations because this drying rate is going to vary from region to region. Uh, what we're always looking for is slight cracking on the butt end of the log. So if you have a piece of wood freshly cut, there's not going to be any checking on that wood. Uh, but give it a week, give it two, maybe even three, depending on the weather, you'll start to see small cracks emanating from the center of the log. That means it's time to inoculate. Now, if those cracks get big enough that you can slip a dime into them, you may want to consider a soak overnight in a tank of water before they're inoculated, just to rehydrate, because that means they're a little bit too dry. So as soon as you start seeing some cracking, you know, hairline cracking emanating out from the center logs, plug away. Interesting. Nice. So if somebody prepares the logs and uh, they're, or they're cutting now, but they don't want to inoculate until springtime when the temperatures are warmer and it'll actually start taking over the log, um, how do you store those logs? Well, typically what we want to do is we want to store the logs so that uh, the moisture loss happens, but at a, at a reduced rate. So what we'll do is typically we'll dead stack logs. Are you familiar with that term? It's like piling uh, pulpwood or firewood that uh, hasn't been processed yet. We just stack it up, keep it off the ground, 
put on the north side of the building. And in our area, snow typically covers them up uh, from the time of cut to inoculation. Uh, we want to avoid exposing them to, you know, a south or west exposure where you get a lot of direct sunlight because that'll just dry them out too much. And also, uh, you know, drying by a sunlight also stimulates some weed fungi problems. So give them a, put them in a protected area. Uh, if you don't have snow, cover them with some evergreen boughs and they can sit for quite a while uh, with that type of protection. Nice. Um, so now I got to ask you, when you're collecting cultures or doing, um, how does that process work? Are you actually taking the spores and putting them into some type of media in it, like a petri dish and growing mycelium? Or how, how does that work as far as collecting cultures? Well, uh, we don't do anything with spores. Uh, spores are too uh, genetically diverse. We're dealing with known strains, and strains are spores that have been mated and are, have a known quality to them. So, for instance, the, the biggest strain development in shiitake, for instance, happen in Japan and China because that's where the industry has been really based historically. So they have a people that are a heck of a lot smarter than me that will take spores, cross them, run a field trials out to see what they come up with. So from start to finish, it takes about eight years for a shiitake strain to be developed with testing. So once that strain is tested, then that mycelium is stored in a deep freeze and then, you know, taken out every once in a while to uh, uh, place onto an artificial media to expand. And that's how we create spawn. We'll expand it onto an artificial media. And then that goes on to a, in our case, a certified organic substrate to increase it. So when so, you, you say artificial media, are you talking something like actually in a Petri dish or are you yeah. talking and then, and then the substrate would be like something that's been sterilized depending on the species or variety of mushroom, whether it's like hardwood or uh, sorghum or something like that, right? That's correct. Typically uh, for expansion of that artificial media is really potato dextrose auger, uh, PDA. And then from there, uh, that is grown and then transferred on to, for instance, uh, rye or millet, for a parent culture, and then that would be then used to inoculate a sawdust or wood or another grain-based substrate. Okay. So when you guys are doing that, like how does that how does that process work as far as say somebody wants to inoculate their own substrate? Um, how does that process work? I mean, I know there's a lot of sterilization involved, but wh what does the sterilization actually sterilization actually entail? Well, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of ways to do things, but uh, really the, the proper way to do it is via sterilization. And so what that means is taking a substrate, let's say, for instance, uh, fuel pellets. Fuel pellets are really big uh, for mushroom cultivators. So those fuel pellets are uh, hydrated. Then there's nutrition added to them, be it wheat bran or whatever people are adding to their mix. And then that needs to be sterilized. Uh, and sterilization is uh, pressure over time. So typically 15 PSI, depending on the load, uh, you know, it could be you want 20 minutes at 120 degrees C uh, for complete sterilization in that substrate. Now, the tricky part, you know, that's easy, actually. <laughs> the tricky part then is inoculating it because you really need to have a clean area to do that. I guess what it boils down to is how much risk do you want to take with uh, inoculation? Uh, you're going to do this in your kitchen. You're going to wipe the counters down and uh, open the bag up, pour stuff in, and hope for the best. Or are you going to invest in a laminar full hood to put in your bedroom, you know, that we can at least create a small sterile area. So there's, you know, once that uh, inoculation process happens, then you learn how good of an area you have or how clean of an area you have for this type of work yeah clean room versus uh a band-aid and rubbing some alcohol on it and 
injecting yep. your substrate or how did you guys start out? It kind of makes me curious. Like, w- did you guys start oh. out doing something kind of similar to that or did you build a, oh, a micro clean room or what did you, you guys do? You, everybody starts out with what they think is a great idea and then they soon find that it isn't all that good. <laughs> Actually, we, our first hood came from Fungi Perfect. 1984, we brought it. And uh, at that time, uh, we were doing stuff uh, in a rented building in Madison. And then we decided that, hey, there's enough interest here in the state because the state of Wisconsin was really pushing at that time that we could actually probably make this a business. So in 1985, we put up our first building. It had a clean room and an incubation space and a sterilizer and whatnot. So we had a couple of years there with our feet on the ground doing stuff, shall we say, hook and crook, <laughs> but uh, on a shoestring budget, uh, what other terms do you want to throw out there? But yeah, uh, once we got past that, uh, then, you know, you know, it's, there's a steep learning curve to all this stuff. It's, you know, it's, it's easy to generate white stuff in a bag once you have the technique down. But is that white stuff in the bag what you really want? You know, is, are you maintaining your strain line? How are you doing that? One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. For in the Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. You know, is the white stuff in a bag hiding something underneath it? So those are all uh, parts of that learning curve that eventually you do figure out. Okay. Yeah, that's all interesting. Um, So say somebody wants to grow indoors, like... Um, I know they use like, I, I don't know, I guess they call them like a boomer tent or, um, like a, it's basically like a miniature greenhouse inside. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do those work? Like what, I mean, it's basically just cr- controlling the humidity and giving them the right amount of light or, you know, what's that like indoor cultivation? Well, I, it's, it's always sounds easy, uh, on paper, uh, and it is for, you know, some specific fungi, uh, you know, shiitake in a, what's the word? I think the, the buzzword out there is Martha tent, right? So you have this little plastic greenhouse in your, in your home and uh, you're controlling the humidity. Great. Shiitake typically has a pretty wide range temperature tolerance, so you can grow shiitake really well. Then you decide that, hey, we're going to throw in the mix uh, king oyster. Let's grow some king oyster in this tent. Well, yeah, they do humidity, humidity, but more importantly, they need cool temperatures. So if your Martha tent's at 72 degrees and you're trying to king oyster, it just isn't going to work. You know, you need temperatures in the 60s. So you have to come up with some sort of environment that's going to be cool. And then, for instance, uh, humidity. You know, king oyster's a great mushroom, one of my favorites. Easy to grow once you get the parameters down, but boy, is it susceptible to a bacterial problem. And that's brought about by poor airflow and high humidity. So those are all things that have to work out because it's going to depend on the specific mushroom you want to grow. So you got to create that environment that matches the need of the fungus. Interesting. So um, what's kind of some of the mushrooms that you've grown fond of other than like the king oyster mushroom? Uh, Like what's your favorite mushroom that you'd ever grow? Uh, you're going to be disappointed to hear the answer. Uh, shiitake. Shiitake is by far my favorite cultivated mushroom. Uh, great texture, great flavor, stores well, cooks well, holds up to anything. I just love it. Uh, however, you know, we my take for a wild mushroom is certainly my favorite. Uh, but, you know, taking a look at the cultivated stuff, King oysters right up there, but we just had this great experience uh, three nights ago with dinner. Uh, you know, we work with fungi every day here at Field and Forest Products, but then I also live with them because we go home and we're testing kits all the time, and we do it right in our kitchen. 
So we went home and Mary Ellen had harvested uh, the pearl, black pearl oyster. And that's big meaty mushroom. And I really haven't been a big fan of it until three days ago because she staked the whole mushroom and we threw it in a pan with some oil and butter. Always a good start right there. <laughs> Sautéed it and we sprinkled on it some hickory smoked sea salt. Not a hickory smoked sea salt. That's been sitting in our house probably for 20 some years. I think we even forgot where we got it from. <laughs> but, but I tell you what, I would have sworn I was eating a center cut pork chop. It was like the best foe for pork ever. And I'm willing, to, I'm willing to retry that recipe to see if we can replicate it because, boy, was it good. That sounds good. So, yeah, it is. Uh, so any one of these mushrooms, you know, they do have their shining moments. Uh, but overall, man, shiitake, hands down. So you were saying maitake, though, for your favorite wild mushroom. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I talked a little bit before the podcast, and I told you how many I've taken, you know, in, in one uh, one trip uh, when even it didn't even matter that I didn't get a deer because I came home with so many mushrooms. But um, what's kind of your favorite way to cook the maitake then? I know I kind of told you what I do, but. Yeah, well, my favorite way to cook is maitake is really just roasting them in a hot oven. A little bit of olive oil strength on a little bit of salt and just roast them until they, you know, they got a great texture to begin with. But if you let them get a little bit dry, that texture is even better. And then uh, they got a great flavor. So you really don't need much in the way of additions to them. So that's really basic. Uh, but boy, sometimes the best way to eat all these mushrooms is just to do something really basic because then you can enjoy their flavor and their texture more than any other way. Yeah. So. I I see that you guys actually sell the maitake kits um, to do, or it's not a kit. I guess it would be some type of inoculated substrate that people can try and grow. Um, Has that kind of proved to be a pretty difficult process for for growing at home? Well, we sell two different items. Uh, We sell a maitake kit which is used to grow maitake in small oak grounds uh, that are you know sterilized or boiled and put in a bag inoculated incubated for several months and then planted outdoors that we got we based that off a, a process we saw in japan back in 2010 and it works pretty well the success rate is pretty good yeah you're always and it has some duds. It's just the nature of the beast. But for the most part, uh, we have those berry blocks all over our property. So in a way, it's kind of going out for a hunt because you usually forget where you put them all. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that that works pretty well. Uh, the other thing that uh, works really well, but it's strictly a one and done phenomenon, is uh, planting maitake blocks, let's say late summer. And then, uh, you know, we typically take them out, take them out of their bag bury them in uh, sawdust or wood chips so they're completely covered. And then in the fall of the year, when temperature and humidity conditions are right, they pop up through this bed. Uh, so it's a one harvest and done. It's really quite impressive. I think that, I don't know if we have anything posted on our website, but I know in the archives, uh, we have some pictures of some pretty amazing fruitings that are going on with that type of cultivation. Uh, it's an easy way to impress your friends too. If they don't know what's buried there, you can just come off as the expert and <laughs> say, Hey, let's go hunt for some maitake. I and look, there they are. I find it pretty easy to find them, you know, in the <laughs> wild, if you know what you're, you're looking at. And mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing for any mushroom hunter, so I've learned is not necessarily learning the species of mushroom, but the, the, the species of trees which exactly. makes that relationship easier to pair together mm-hmm. once you know mm-hmm. those. Is that, uh, so, I mean, your background is pretty, pretty diverse as far as that from the, like the, the forestry standpoint to, um, you know, the department of natural resources and, and, uh, and then actually doing in college, some of the mycology classes and stuff like that. So it kind of was just a matter of when, right? When, when you were kind of come together at that point and, and, and uh, start the business. 
Well, you know, it's it's actually been uh, a really lifelong learning experience because it does bring together so many disciplines. You know, my college is a small part of it. Uh, you got forestry, forest management, tree identification, you know, and then you got to know your atmospheric sciences, right, too, to figure out which way the wind is blowing from uh, so you can place a lane yard properly. So, yeah, it's, it's been great. Uh, you know, we, we have uh, loved every moment of it because it involves so many things. So I guess I have a question for you while we're on the substance of trees and mushrooms. Where are you finding your morels now? You don't have to tell me specifics, but under what tree species? Elms. Around here, it's elm trees. Um, okay. I uh, Down south, a little bit further, it's the tulip poplars for sure. But um, okay. in, in my area, the dominant or predominant area for them is definitely elm trees. And uh, I always look up in order to find the morels. So that's kind of how I do it. Well, that's interesting. You know, we've uh, we've gone through uh, our elm forests here. You know, Dutch elm disease took care of those. Uh, so where we're finding them now is underneath declining white and green ash on the uplands. Really? So if you can identify ash up here, you walk from ash tree to ash tree looking for morels now. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't... Um recently i started finding them well obviously mostly black morels but um in uh pines a lot of a lot of different mm -hmm. pine species i've uh and at first i didn't even realize or know that they grew there but then i started um talking to people and the more i read that especially out west you know you get your conifers and you, you find a bunch of morels there mm -hmm. so i was like man maybe i should start looking and uh, my buddy's got a bunch of different types of uh, conifers on his property. And I started walking around with them and we found a ton of morels. <laughs> so that's another place <laughs> to look. And that was one place that I never did. And it probably doubled my harvest that year. So um, it's definitely something well, I keep in go. mind now. Yeah. So every spring, one of our favorite things to do is to go to the local mountain biking trail here. And it's in through a coniferous forest. And that's where we find our black morels. Nice. And, yeah. then, and then and then, if you want to ride your bike up the hill into the hardwood forest where the ash is growing, that's where we'll find the whites. Nice. Yeah. I still, I mean, do you have a preference as far as morels go, as far as like a white or a gray or the like the darker, the black ones? Not really. You know, <laughs> I'm, my palate is not very well educated when it comes to uh, taste and culinary differences between the morels. Uh, I've always been partial to the white ones just because they seem to be larger. That's, you know, there's more there. That's what I was going to say. I actually uh, just recently came up with some stickers and one of them was, it's actually a hand and it's grabbing a morel and it's uh, it says picking fatties, but it's because like the, the, <laughs> the yellow morels or the whites, uh, it seems like they just get so much bigger. I mean, I found them the size of like a beer can before, and, and that's always like a prize, especially if they're not buggy and full of a bunch of insects at that point, and they're that large. It's just, it's such a treat, and you can actually slice it up and and uh, take a whole like a fillet almost and put it in the pan and cook it up in some <laughs> animal fat or butter. And that's by far my favorite way to cook a morel. Oh yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, one thing too is that we've been. You know, we, we have not produced morels spawn in a while. Um, and, and the reason being is I have to sleep at night because I really want to sell something that we know is going to work. But however, over the last 20 years, we've planted a lot of morels spawn on our property. And we're seeing morels now where we've never seen them before. But unfortunately, we can't answer the question, was this from our planting or is this just because the forest is changing that we're seeing morels now? Uh, we have an old apple orchard. That's where I'll have sometimes. I don't yeah. know if you ever look in old apple orchards, but boy, I tell you what, declining apple orchards are a great place for all. Yeah. One of the things that I've always been told, depending on the apple orchard, is whether or not you know the apple orchard, because they used to spray a lot of mm -hmm. lead mm -hmm. arsenic on the apple trees as an insecticide in order to preserve the apples. So as fungi acts as a filter, 
for different things. It seems like it might not be a good idea depending on, on the area. So I don't know any apple orchards that I personally know the history of it. So I kind of stay away from them, but. Yeah, we're fortunate. We know this one because it's been in the family since 1917. So yeah, we know the history pretty well here, but yeah, it's uh, one of those things that you never know, like box elder. How many morels have you found under box elder? That turned out two years to be one of the hottest species for finding morels under. That's interesting. I never would have guessed it. I never would have guessed it. So that's it. Kind of reminds me of I would always use as an indicator because it seems like the warmest spots, the spots with the most sunlight, seem to always get the first morels. And I cut down when I first moved into my house. I cut down a big black oak, or I'm sorry, not a black oak. It was a black walnut tree, and it was a massive black walnut. And I cut it down because it was half dead leaning over my driveway. And I was just like, man, that would be terrible if, you know, somebody's car was parked in the driveway and it get a gust of wind and it takes that thing down. So after I cut that down, I had my friend's dad come over with a stump grinder and grind it up. Well, it wasn't the following the year after, but two years after it started popping up morels in that area, only about five or six of them, but every year consistently for about five years until it finally just petered out. But it was amazing, and I'd use that as an indicator of when the morels were actually popping up because that was a sunny spot in my yard. There was, you know, no shade or cover. It was kind of interesting. Well, you know, there's a mushroom that, in a way, will never cease to amaze, amaze me in the wild. Uh, we had uh, a huge oak. We have oaks that predate the Great Peshkel Fire of 1871 on our property, and as with anything that's getting old, they, they tend to get decrepit. So every once in a while, one has to be removed. Well, we had one dropped, and it dropped with a big thud. The uh, base of that tree was probably 34, 36 inches in diameter. And when it landed, it put an indentation into the earth that was probably six inches deep, three feet long, you know, 18 inches wide. And I thought, oh, great, another thing to cover up. Well, I never got to cover it up in our lawn. And the next spring, it was solid morels just <laughs> in that one spot. It's like, okay, explain this to me. All right. And yeah. I have no explanation for it. So, I mean, I, I just find it interesting that other tree species, other than the ones that are commonly known, sometimes hold the morels. And I actually have found them um, in the early spring looking, not even necessarily for morels, but looking for pheasant backs or other things and have mm -hmm. have found at the base of oak trees where I also in the fall find the maitakis and I found morels there. I mean, it's it's rare, but it still happens. And I always just find it fascinating that, that they end up in places like that. Yeah, I guess we must live in a pretty unusual space or it's our morel spawn coming to fruition. Uh, that's where we find the bulk of the, the morels in our yard is in association with oak. And then with apple. That's interesting. Go go figure. <laughs> I don't find them too often by oaks, but I mean it, it does it does tend to happen. Um so that I mean that's pretty cool though that, that you're doing that. And I, I would almost lean to believe that maybe it is your you know, your cultivation of them and trying to grow them in different spots, but you never know. Well, yeah, we'd like to believe that. <laughs> so do you guys you don't ever really sell the actual uh morel spawn then? Or is it something that's maybe everyone's no. while with a disclaimer? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've, we've been talking. I, uh, our mycologist has really come up with a, a pretty good recipe for making it consistently uh, without having the, the strain degenerate. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that sometimes just serves as a distraction from our main business, which is, you know, wood decay fungi. So, yeah, eventually we may offer it. And it, it may be one of those things that we say, well, we're going to sell you a bag of hope. That is, <laughs> we, hope it, we hope it works and leave it go at that. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool, though, that, you know, you guys could even do it or even, you know, do it for yourselves. That's pretty neat. Um, so can you kind of talk about the products that you do offer and the, the varieties um, that you do offer if people wanted to go to your, your website and sure. order some? Well, let's uh, uh, talk about log-based cultivation. Uh, 
which is a great place to start learning about fungi and the, the whole art of decay. Uh, we offer, I think, a dozen different strains of shiitake. Don't be overwhelmed by that. There's uh, all sorts of knowledge that's available if you give us a call or ask a question online. But, you know, if you haven't grown mushrooms before, you want to grow some shiitake. A wide range strain is great. Uh, oyster mushrooms. Oh, man, I don't know how different species of oyster mushrooms itself or log-based cultivation. There's a, a species that does well on a soft hardwoods. So you got tulip poplar, cottonwood, aspen, boy, grow some oyster mushrooms. Uh, lion's mane and uh, comb's tooth, two other fungi that we grow for log-based cultivation, along with uh, sulfur shell and maitake. Uh, those latter two require a little more work, diligence and work to get going. Uh, and I'm probably forgetting a bunch of other stuff. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, the foliota species. We produce uh, Namaco, which is actually one of my mushrooms that's up on the list of my favorites. Uh, it's got a great flavor, great texture, great slime to it. Uh, chestnut, another log-grown uh, mushroom that's in that foliota genus can be cultivated on one. So it goes on and on, and I tend to forget more than what I remember nowadays. So uh, we do have a great website that is chock full of information to the point where it's almost overwhelming. But uh, fieldforest.net is where you want to go if you want any information on log-based cultivation. Uh, for substrate-based cultivation, uh, you know, we, we narrowed it down to one shiitake strain. And then king oyster, black pearl, chestnut. Gray dove. Oh, what else is there? Uh, <laughs> gray dove, the oysters, the Italian, yeah, black pearl. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of flavors that you can grow in the oyster mushroom group, uh, not only on sawdust, but also on straw. And then uh, one of the hottest commodities, because it's so easy and it has so many good things going forward in terms of soil improvement, is uh, wine cap stropheria, or we call it just wine cap. Uh, easy mushroom to grow on straw, on wood chips, or a combination of the two outside in beds. And um, you talk about being able to convert cellulose and lignin into organic matter. There's the mushroom to do it. It's really just, if you got, if you got poor soil, you want to improve them, get some wine cap, get some straw, get some wood chips, and you're well on your way to improving your soil with it because it does such a great job of converting that into organic matter. You know, another crop that we do, another spawn we do produce is uh, almond agaricus, and that's for people that want to grow in compost, particularly in hot environments. So up here at 45 degrees north where it's snowing like there's no tomorrow, uh, that's really a, typically a greenhouse crop because we can generate the heat for it. But, you know, you get into the southeastern United States where it seems like it's hot all the time. That's a great crop for growing outside in a, in a composted substrate. So, yeah, we, we do cover a lot of stuff, uh, uh, a lot of different mushrooms that grow out there. And, you know, the thing is, is that uh, we have the experience of growing them. So if you ever have any questions, boy, just give us a holler. I'm glad to help you along. Nice. I got to ask you real quick about the wine cap a little bit more. You were talking about soil quality and improvement. Um, is that a good one to actually plant in a garden? Say you're using straw as your weed barrier or something like that. Is that something that would uh, take hold in, in the straw like that in the substrate if you did multiple layers of it? Oh, you bet. Uh, that's how we first started cultivating it was uh, in between rows of asparagus using straw that was inoculated and then covered up with, you know, any wood chip for that matter. But uh, if you can source a wood chip that it likes to decay, so much better because you'll get more mushrooms that way. But yeah, that's ideal. That's really the ideal situation. You know, garden planting with straw and then a wood chip covering to help improve soil fertility. Nice. I and also keep the, keep the weeds down too. Yeah, I think I'm going to maybe try and do that uh, in my garden this year maybe in between the tomatoes or something. I don't know if, if that'd be a bad idea or not, if they get too shaded out or. Uh, as long as you do it outside, it should be okay. Uh, we find that in a, a, a greenhouse environment. Yeah, it works, uh, but not nearly as well as outside. It seems that they like a little more sun than shade. So 
should qualify that because otherwise people would be growing these in a cornfield. Uh, <laughs> so what we find the ideal environment uh, for us is uh, underneath small fruit trees. Okay. Because you get sun and you get shade and it seems to be a great combo. Uh, so yeah, uh, take a look at that. Uh, but yeah, stuff like asparagus that doesn't have the real dense shade is also a great place to be growing wine cap. Nice. Joe, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on and sharing today and educating me and the the listeners as well. So uh, I truly appreciate it. And uh, thanks thanks for coming on again. And can you, real quick though, just tell everybody where they can find you guys and your products one more time. Okay. Uh, we're online at fieldandforest.net. Or pardon me, I said that wrong because it's two in the afternoon and you need a cup of coffee. That's the www.fieldforest.net. And there's only one iron forest. And also Instagram. And I don't know if you yeah, guys are on Facebook or not. but Instagram and Facebook. And we do have a Facebook group for mushroom cultivation. So we're, we're out there on the socials if you need them. Nice. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Hey, you're welcome. Take care. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You go out there and the fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.